Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. The beginning of Acts goes back and forth from general descriptions to particular stories. And right before Acts 4.32, we have a particular story, and the particular story is of Peter and John healing a lame man, then being arrested for it, testifying before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, being threatened by those religious leaders who told them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And then, letting them go. And letting them go because the people were delighted that this lame man had been healed. And so they didn't feel like they could actually do anything to Peter and John, even though they wanted to. So they released them. on the reasoning that if they beat them or imprisoned them or did anything else to them, that everybody would be mad. And so that story of Peter and John is a particular example of the general principle that had been stated in Acts 2.47, which said that the people were, uh, that the church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you get these, these general statements like that. They, they were growing in favor with the people and the Lord was adding to their number. And then it dives into a particular story of what that looked like. Now... You finish that story and you make it to Acts 4.32 where we start and now it switches back to a general description of what was happening at that time. And so, this is sort of the way we, uh, this is sort of the way we tell stories, right? You give a, a, a big picture overview real quick of your of what's happening, and then you dive into the particulars. And you say, and here's what it looked like. And so you could cut out the you could cut out the particulars, and you could skip from Acts 247 to Acts 432, and it would be, you know, they were praising God and having favor with the people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then you pick up in verse 32 and it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And the Acts would be a lot shorter. And it would be a lot less interesting, wouldn't it? And it would be a lot less helpful. Because it's when you begin to get into the particulars that you actually begin to engage in the story. Right? But we're dealing with the general principles the whole time. So let's, let's, look at this, let's look at this general principle. It continues some of that same idea in Acts 2.47, but it adds to it and it focuses on a different aspect. Please stand 
as we read Acts 4, 32 through 35. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So like I said, we're reading the general, right? Then immediately, if you continue into verse 36 and then chapter 5, you see the particulars laid out of Joseph selling his house. I mean, yeah, Joseph selling his house and property and bringing all of the money and giving it to the apostles to distribute. And then of Ananias and Sapphira selling their property and pretending to bring all of the money. And they end up dead, right? It's a very intense story. And without that added on, well, we're not going to study that, but without that part added on to this particular, this particular can just be sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they were all one accord, and then they sold, and they, you know, they, they shared with each other. Nobody had any needs, and blah, blah, blah. But until you hear the particular stories of how that actually went down, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I Wow, that's a bigger deal than I thought. Well, what I want us to do is look at that one little phrase that describes them as being of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. Right there in verse 32. Now, the bit about sharing personal property is probably what stands out to most of us in this passage first, right? I think probably for everybody except maybe really little kids. And even then, then sometimes sharing is like the worst thing in the world, right? The hardest thing in the world. But actually, that sharing flows out of the fact that they were of one heart and soul. And so that's why I want to go to that first part, right? If you don't have any concept of the value of any of your personal belongings, then yeah, you may share. You may share, but you're not going to share generously. You may share everything you have, right? Oh yeah, here, you can have this, and it's, it's like all of the money in your piggy bank. Well, who cares? Because what is money in a piggy bank to a three-year-old? Is that being generous? Well, maybe for some three-year-olds who who do that, yes. But it's not until we have some concept of the value. It's not until it means something to us that then that sort of sharing really begins to take a bite, as it you know, out of our hearts. 
And that's why I think it stands out so much to us. Nobody claimed that anything they had was their own. But really, it's, it's actually more impressive that they were being of one heart and soul. It comes first, and it's what leads to that generous sharing with one another. And it's more impressive because not all of them had anything to share. But they were all of one accord with one another. They all had one heart and soul. And there were more than 5,000 people at this time. So you look around this room, and there's a few of us here, right? And, and the idea of having one heart and soul is hard enough. It's hard enough when you get two people together. But when you've got 5,000 people together, who are all a part of this church by this point, and it describes them as being the, 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 the whole congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That is amazing. There is a unity there that we need to seek ourselves in this body. And so my intent this morning isn't isn't just to tell you that we should all be of one heart and soul, but to make you truly desire that to sell you on that. My purpose is to make you leave desperate for that same thing that the early church had. Because I'm desperate that we have it. What does it mean to be of one heart and soul? Well, there's a lot of different ways of approaching that, thinking about that. One of them is to think about your closest friend. Who's your closest friend? And what would you do for that person? Well, this is the person you would do anything that you could to help. You love them. And so your real desire is for them to benefit from your actions. That's how we treat our closest friend. Our motives, of course, we know, aren't ever completely selfless. So some of you are thinking, man, I don't know, that's not how I treat my wife. Isn't she supposed to be my closest friend? I'm pretty selfish an awful lot of the time. I do care that I get something out of this deal. Yes, yes. Uh, Our motives, of course, there's always selfishness. But still, there are relationships that we have with people that are not about what we can get out of it, right? More than that, 
you know that they desire good things for you as well. You trust each other with secrets. You turn to each other in times of sorrow for comfort. You love to spend time with them. If you're a man and you think of your best friend, this is the man you can just sit around with without trying to prove anything. Right? You don't have to you don't have to feel like there's some sort of competition. Typically, these, these friends are people who like doing the same kinds of things as us. And so you love spending time together because you agree about things that are important to you. All of these are good ways to think about what it means to be of one heart and soul with one another. Just think about that for a second. To be of one heart and soul... means that you're going to enjoy spending time with each other. You're going to want to spend time with each other. It means that you're not going to be feeling like there's some sort of competition or something that you've got to prove to each other. You're going to just enjoy being with one another. It means that you're going to be able to trust each other. You're not going to have to fear them finding out your secrets. Probably the simplest way to describe it is it means caring more about each other than yourself. Right? Caring about the other person more than yourself. <clears throat> that can't... You, you, if, if that's what describes your relationship with somebody else, you can't help but be united with them. It's automatically what's going to happen. Another way of thinking about this, trying to show you what unity, what that being of one heart and soul looks like, is to think about possessions. To think about the possession that you care most about. And is there anybody that you care about so much and love so much that you'd simply give up that precious belonging in order to help them? You need help? What kind of help do you need? How can I provide that help? I can provide help by selling that land? Done. Getting rid of my house? Done. Selling my business? Selling my great-grandma's engagement ring? Selling my car, my boat, my bike, my four-wheeler? Any of it.
When my nephew Nathan was little, he had a blanket that was very special to him. It was his precious blanket, right? And I remember hearing the story about his love, meaning that he offered up his blanket. It was his most precious belonging. And what, you know, it wasn't his love for his blanket that offered him, you know, that caused him to offer it up. It was his love for somebody else. It was his love for his brother, right? What does that show you about the relationship? It shows you the unity. And that's what's happening here when it says they were of one heart and soul and then that nobody claimed anything was their own. That's the result of the unity. And so are we willing to give up our belongings for the sake of each other? That's the type of unity that we see in the early church. Even if it might put you in need later, are you willing to do it if it puts you in need now? Are you willing to do it if, if it looks like it'll put you in need later? These, this Jerusalem church, these members that were not claiming that anything was their own and were giving them up willingly to one another as anybody had need, they were selling land and famine came later. Is it because they're idiots that they didn't consider the fact that maybe they would need this land later? No. They knew exactly what they were doing. Their concern was for one another greater than for themselves. So they were of one mind. Think about what that, what that means for a second. Being of one mind means that you're in agreement, right? That's the way that you say, that's, that's one way of describing perfect agreement. Your minds were as one. When you, when you hear the saying, great minds think alike, that's talking about how both of you came to the same idea at the same time because you're both amazing, right? That's, that's agreement. That's being of one mind on one little particular thing. Like, hey, let's go to the pool today. Great minds think alike. Or, I'm of one mind with you. I think that's the most important thing to do today, right? Because, hey, it's hot out. But being of one mind indicates a deeper agreement than just this one particular idea. That's, ha that's sharing one idea. Being of one mind means that all of your ideas are the same. So if you say that you're of one mind with somebody else, and you're talking about politics... Okay, now all of a sudden we're not talking about something as simple as, hey, should we go to the pool today? Now you're talking about 
Things that you could spend hours and hours and hours talking about. Right? And there's a billion different choices. And to say that you're of one mind means that you're so much in agreement with one another that every political thought or decision or vote or anything, you guys are just like, yeah, he can, he can cast my vote. Nope. No problem. I, I know he thinks exactly the same thing I do. We're of one mind on politics. And politics is just a small area of life. So to be of one mind about whether to go to the pool is like, okay, I mean, does that, does that indicate that there's unity here? Well, no, frankly. Yes, but it's so shallow as to be meaningless. To indicate that you're of one mind with politics, that begins to say something, right? But then to just state flat out, we are of one mind. That's indicating that you guys share the same thoughts, opinions, desires, priorities across what? Everything. All of life. And so now you begin to see why they were willing to share their property with one another. They had exactly the same mind as one another. A need for the one, like, hey, I need some money to buy food, right? that translated into every person there thinking the same thing. Hey, he needs money to buy food. They were of one mind. And that's why it made perfect sense that immediately people would be like, oh, there's a need? We, we as an entity have a need? We have a way to meet that need. Here is our property. See, they didn't say, here is my land. And that's the whole difference between Ananias and Sapphira, who died, and Joseph, right? Joseph brought his land, but it was their land in his mind. They're seeking exactly the same thing. They have the same goal as one another. And that goal is not that one person might benefit, right? This isn't some sort of manipulative situation where the apostles are like, hey, let's convince everybody in this whole church, right, to have the same mind as us, and our mind is to puff ourselves up. This is the definition of cult, right?
a cult of personality is where everybody's of one mind, but the one thing that they're in agreement of and seeking is the raising up of the one man, and not the one man, Jesus Christ. But some teacher or preacher, right? So this was a unity that they had that was a holy unity. Not an unholy unity. Nothing makes us more likely to love one another than working together towards the same goal that we both care deeply about. You can't help but love one another when you're both working and and you see, hey, they care about the same thing I care about. Hey, we're, we're both working towards this. We both want this to happen. This is beautiful, right? So to return to politics, think of a, you know, a political activist. He finds himself loving those who pursue the same goal as him, right? You work together in this tight-knit group to blanket the area with flyers and whatever it is that you're going to do, right? Make calls, spread the word. And what's the goal? That candidate, to raise up that one candidate. We find ourselves automatically friends with those who we've never even met when we pursue the same thing together with them. If I walk by my neighbor's house while they're having a party for the Bengals, which they will here in a few months, every day that the Bengals are playing, the garage is open, the TV's on, and there's an open party. And if I walk by and I start cheering for the Bengals, I am welcomed as a friend. That's all I have to do. All I have to do is have the same desire as them, and I am welcome to sit on the couch and drink the beer and be a friend. I'm loved. Is that weird? Well, to some of us it's weird because we couldn't care less about What do they play? I'm just kidding. (laughs) So maybe you don't care about sports, and so that seems weird to you. Or maybe you do care about sports, but not football. And it would make a lot more sense to you if we were talking about the Reds. Or maybe it would make a lot more sense if we were talking about FC Cincinnati or, or whoever it is that you care about, right? I mean, FC Cincinnati hasn't been around long enough for anybody to really care about it, but still. Except you, you care? (laughs) Well, good, somebody must. They've been having great attendance. But so, so all it takes for us to have a friend in a sports bar is to be rooting for the same team. And for them to do well, and you stand up, and you jump up, and you cheer, and... You hug the person next to you when they win the game and you don't have any idea what their name is. This flows out of the one desire that you share. That unified principle. That unified goal. Do you guys see this? This doesn't only happen in sports. I just, that's why some of, some of you, you just think, 
I don't understand why they do that. But then I say, okay, so fine, walk into your local uh, you know, libertarian discussion group and make your friends. Or walk into your local, whatever it is that, that really gets you fired up and you find people who are also excited about that same thing and boom, instant connection, instant friendship, instant unity. Unity of purpose and working towards the same thing creates these kinds of connections with one another. They're on this, they're on this deeper level than like even knowing each other's names. And the more important the goal is to us, the deeper the automatic kinship we feel with the person. Now notice I didn't say the more important the goal that you're working towards. I said the more important it feels to you. You get the difference? We, you can have these, this automatic kinship with people who support the same sports team as you. But if you don't, if you don't care that much about sports, then that automatic kinship is going to be kind of mm, flimsy. But if you care about that as the ultimate, most important thing in your life, then that kinship you feel is going to be stronger, deeper. Now, that doesn't change based on how important it is that the Bengals win this game, you see? Objective importance doesn't really make that much of a difference in this feeling of unity that we can have or disunity that we can have with one another. But the beautiful thing here is that this is the church of Jesus Christ. And so the, the one goal that they have is not just super, super important to them. The one goal that they have is also objectively the most important thing that God's name would be glorified. And so, how sad is it that we have this automatic, deep kind of friendship automatically there with people over sports? if we then don't have a, a far deeper kinship and friendship and unity with those who share the goal of God's kingdom going forth in power in this world, of his name being glorified in our lives by our actions, What, a, what an amazing thing to be united over. 
compared to a sports team. Compared to a political party, compared to one hobby, oh, you like going skydiving? I like going skydiving. Let's talk about skydiving. Well, great. I mean, I'm glad that's fun. But it doesn't matter. Are we of one mind with one another in this church? We need to be. Are we working towards the same thing? Do you care about the work, the way that other people are working towards building up Christ's name here in Cincinnati? Are you afraid to speak your mind for fear of what they might think of you? Well, then you don't have the kind of unity that this church had, did it, do you? Because to have this kind of unity means there's, there's no fear because you know that you're of the same mind and so you can, you can say what you think. Again, I mean, I, I want you to understand what this. I, I want you to understand what this looks like, and so I I bring these analogies like sports in, and it's just it's so shallow, and yet it explains the concept so perfectly well. If you're sitting in a room of all Bengals fans, and you say. Oh, that was a terrible call. He was totally in the end zone, and everybody's going to be in total agreement with you. You don't have to worry about it. But if there's one stupid fan of the Steelers in there, right, you got to worry about giving yourself a little bit of wiggle room and not necessarily just being totally over the top in lack of judgment. Do we fear to speak our mind? Do we fear what others are going to think of us? Do we fear them correcting us? Do we fear them gossiping? Do we fear them becoming jealous or judging us? All of those things are an indication that we need to grow in unity with one another, that we need to unite our purpose, that we need to work together. Remember I say that, the, that if you both have the same desire, if you're both working towards the same thing, that you'll automatically have this kind of unity. The, the flip side of that is that you are not able to work with one another. You are not able to both pursue the same goal if you're afraid of these kinds of 
judgments, jealousies. Um, if you can't speak your mind with one another, you won't be able to make forward progress in the goal. So this is the church in Acts. 5,000 people. And it says that all of them who believed were of one heart and soul. It's even deeper than mind. The, the very core of who they are, their heart and their soul, were totally united. But how in the world did they do that? How did they have that kind of unity? Well, first of all, the, the most important thing we need to realize is that this is something that God accomplishes. In the Old Testament, we see an example of this in 2 Chronicles, it says, The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful statement? The king and the princes commanded things that needed to be done, right? Right? And they commanded them by the word of the Lord. And it says that God, the hand of God, was on Judah, which is all of the people, to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes had commanded. Ezekiel 11, 19, and 20, we see a similar description, a promise this time, God says, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. And so what does this show us? Well, it shows us that the unity that flowed from them is first and foremost because it, of what comes, again, prior to that. It says, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This was not just a random group of 5,000 people who got together and decided that they were going to be of one heart and soul. And you know what? Let's make peace, peace among all men. See, this is what, this is what we keep being told to do today. Just have there be this, this peace. We're going to make racial peace. We're going to make economic peace. We're going to make peace, peace, peace. We're going to have this wonderful unity across these totally divergent groups of people who hate each other because 
They want opposite things as each other. Until you have unity of purpose, until you have the same belief, that's impossible. This is those who believed having one heart and soul. And that fits perfectly with that promise in Ezekiel that God says that he will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. The fact that they believe and have received the Holy Spirit is what gives them the ability to be united. It's what gives them that same desire, that same principle, pushing them towards the same thing. It's because their heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh that they have one heart. And so this is ultimately where our hope for unity in this body comes from. It's not because of anything else that we share. We share this room. So what? Two people who share a room can be violent with each other. Just ask two brothers who shared a room growing up. Right? That doesn't give you unity. It isn't because we share the same socioeconomic status. The super poor and the super rich can both hate people in their same tax bracket. That doesn't give you unity. It isn't because we share a race, because we don't. It isn't because we share anything except for a new heart given to us by God. And so this unity flows from the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. At the end of the book of John, we read Jesus praying that this very thing would happen. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Notice that. He prays for those who believe. And what does he pray? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay, there you go. I've been talking about this unity. I've been talking about this oneness of principle, and I've never really said what exactly it is, right? Just, just describing what it looks like to be of one unity, to, to be of one heart and, and soul, to be of one mind. And now, 
I say, how did they get that way? And I say, well, they shared this one motivating principle and, they, and God changed them and gave them one heart. But what was it that they were after? Well, Jesus says what he's after here. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Give them unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. He repeats himself in this prayer. so that the world may know that you sent me. First he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Then he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And so what is the one guiding principle? What is the one unifying work that we're doing together? Well, the outcome is the world believing. That's, that's Jesus' goal. And so the work is diverse. All right? But the goal that unites us is the same. The work may look like totally different things, depending on your family, depending on your, you know, your time in life, depending on your financial resources, depending on all kinds of things. But the goal is so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son, that the Father loved the world. The thing that unites us is that the gospel goes forth in power. This is the heart of how this happens. We can only be united because Jesus is united with God the Father and because he has united us with himself. It is God's unity. The unity of the Holy Spirit in us that we have been given. It's truly amazing because this is the unity that is, this is an attribute of God. The unity that he has within himself. He then, Jesus prays that we would have it in ourselves. The very same unity that he has with the Father, he prays that we would have within ourselves. And so when when you get to Acts and the start of the church, of course, this, this is the completion, this is the fulfillment, the answer to Jesus' prayer. How beautiful is that? And the happy thing is that it was not a temporary 
thing. Paul goes on teaching us to do this. Numerous places. In Romans 15, 5, and 6, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then again in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 14. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Paul seems to think we need to be reminded of the need for unity, doesn't he? Ephesians 4, 2 through 4, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is there a letter that he writes where he doesn't talk about this unity? Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Or later, Philippians 2.2, Make my joy complete by You guys can all guess it by now, right? Being of the same mind and maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And of course, that's something that we have to be exhorted to do. It's something that we have to work towards. So how do we do this? Brothers and sisters, love one another. Don't look down on one another. We are one body. You think the work that other people are doing is worthless work, then you don't have this unity. Do you think that other people aren't 
working hard enough, and so you're looking down on them. Then you don't have this unity. If we are united in our obedience to God's commands, that will be an answer to the prayer of Jesus Christ. And you know what will flow from that? What Jesus says will flow from it. Others will believe. What a beautiful thing. Do we want that? I want that. And I want us to be desperate for it. I want to pray for it like Paul prayed for it for the churches. Pray for it like Jesus prayed for it for the churches. Look forward to it as an answer to God's promise in the Old Testament. As a result of sharing that one spirit that he has given to us, his Holy Spirit. And what a beautiful thing. We will see souls added to our number. Because people will believe that Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father because of his great love for us. And we'll be about that work together. Amen? Let's pray.